Ralph sends his love, by the way, everybody. Uh, our friend from Switzerland, who's always on with us, um, as well as the other people that watch. Greetings to you if you just tuned in. I'm Jeff. I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis Group. Genesis Group. Genesis Gathering. Sorry about that. And it's great to have you with us. I also work for a company called Genesis Group. Um, Wow, we are in the middle of a series, smack dab. This is message number four of six. The series is entitled, Hell No. So this is part four. Today I'm going to talk about why is God so angry? Does he have to get even? Here's some of the other message titles that we've had in the series. Where does hell come from? Is it in the Bible? If hell speaking of a future destiny and eternal conscious torment, is real, it depends almost entirely on this. And we talked about what that this is. Last week we talked about, let's look at the scriptures on this subject. Today, why is God so angry? God willing, next week is hell necessary in order to share the gospel? And then we'll wind up the message with universal hope, the hope of ultimate redemption. Each week I have been issuing, um, I'm not going to call it a disclaimer, it's a, it's a foundational statement about this entire series. Um, I think it is one of the most important subjects that we can talk about in the Church of Jesus Christ. And I think it's one of the, if not the, most misunderstood subjects or topics in the church today. Uh, Tying in with atonement theories, such as penal substitution, so forth. We talked about that in message number uh, three, as well as uh, number two, specifically. So let me restate this, or not restate it, but state it again because uh, there's people that are hearing this for the first time. You might be coming into the series brand new and you're hearing this message this morning for the first time not having heard any of the other three. This series of messages I've been pulling from the work of some of history's as well as present day's greatest theologians, scholars, and writers, including the writings of the patristic fathers, such as Clement, Origen, Ignatius, and Gregory of Nicaea, Swiss theologian Karl Barth, Scottish theologian T.F. Torrance, English theologian N.T. Wright, and American theologian and pastors Gregory Boyd and Brian Zahn. I owe a deep grade, a debt of gratitude to the work of Brad Jerzak, Canadian author, speaker, pastor, and teacher for his book, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, upon with, or which this series is based. And numerous comments that I'll share with you today are taken from this outstanding book. I'm going to add to that now, this book, and you'll see it on the screen. This is Brian Zahn's book. It is his response to the very famous sermon that was preached in the uh, 1700s by Jonathan Edwards. That is the de facto standard sermon and groundwork for the evangelical understanding of hell and um, atonement theory having to do with penal substitution. Many preachers have re-preached it and, and preach it on a regular basis, in fact. 
Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God is the title of that sermon. Well, so Brian wrote a response to that called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. What a tremendous book. And again, I will be using it liberally uh, this morning as I talk about various things. Here's our foundational topic this morning, or a foundational statement, all right? Here's the big idea. As long as the cross is, is the place where an angry God poured out his wrath upon his own son, you will never see the beautiful cross as the self-sacrificial giving of the crucified God in love with the world. It's impossible to have both views. As we begin today, I want to talk about myth and metaphor and the importance of metaphor, especially as it applies to the Scripture. A metaphor is a comparison made between two or more things using figurative or descriptive language. Metaphors turn difficult ideas into simple concepts. Metaphors are infused with written text with vivid descriptions that make the text more vibrant and more enjoyable to read. You know, metaphors are a common method of sharing speech. It, it, metaphor is a figure of speech that's common in all literary devices. And the Bible is no exception. It has lots and lots of metaphors. Let me give you a couple of examples here. You'll recognize some of these. Isaiah chapter 68, or 64 and verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter, and all of us are the work of your hands. Clearly a metaphor. God's followers are the clay. We are subject to his design and his influence. How about this one from the book of Psalms? Psalm 84, verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield, well, he's not actually the sun. He's not actually, doesn't look like a shield. That's not the shape of his body, right? The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. So here, God is glorious. He's the source of life, and he's a fierce protector of his children. Again, metaphor but it explains, sometimes difficult to understand or helps us to relate better to ideas from the Scripture. Here's another one taken from the New Testament. You'll definitely recognize the wording of this, at least, I'm sure, and it's definitely the idea of it. Jesus said this in John's Gospel, chapter 15 and verse 5. I am the true vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Well, see, this is relational language talking about the organic relationship between Christ and the church or between Jesus and a follower. He says it's a relationship that grows and it changes like fruit on a vine. It grows. Also, it's not in the same season all year long. Fruit grows. It goes through seasons. And so does our life. Our life goes through seasons. What a beautiful metaphor for the Christian experience. There's a sense of connectedness here. Disciples, as disciples, we don't operate on our own power or strength or wisdom. There's also an awareness of love and discipline because a tree and its 
branches or a vine and its branches have to be pruned. And those of you who have ever, gar ever gardened or pruned a tree or a plant know that the pruning is necessary to actually bring more growth. It's a healthy thing. It's desirable. And so the Lord's relationship with us. Now, here's two examples of modern-day evangelical evangelicalism that have it all wrong in my view. I'm going to present them to you here. First is John MacArthur. Listen to this. It's just a clip from a sermon that he taught, very public. I'm not, you know, divulging anything here, and I'm not trying to make fun of anyone here. Uh, I'm not drawing to a conclusion based on this. I'm simply presenting some facts and making an observation based on his own sermon material here. He asks in this clip, where is the fear and where is the terror of God? Let's see. And it's, it's all who accept his high-sounding words raised up against the true knowledge of God are still in the state of Luther but without the fear. Pause for just a moment. And if you're without the fear, you're going to hell happily. Okay, so I, I need to give you the uh, quick background of who or what he's talking about. He's criticizing another author, one who I've mentioned here, the English theologian N.T. Wright. He's criticizing his position on atonement and thus his words. Okay, let's continue. And all who except his high-sounding words raised up against the true knowledge of God are still in the state of Luther but without the fear. And if you're without the fear, you're going to hell happily. What amazes me is that people can do this and have no fear and propagate it and many, many young men, evangelical young men in seminary and training are influenced by right to believe the wrong thing, to be propagating a false gospel and denying the true gospel and have absolutely no fear and no angst and no guilt and no dread and no terror and no torture is to be void of the work of the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. The good news about Martin Luther was the Spirit was at work in his soul. But it was the knowledge of the revelation of God as the righteous judge and the wrath of God from Scripture that was activated in his soul to cause him to fear until he found the truth. What doesn't exist today in the church is that fear. Where are the terrified people? Where are the terrorized sinners? Where is the angst? Where is the dread? And all. So I understand that you might uh, ascribe to that uh, type of teaching and theology. And I'm not going to criticize you. He was doing likewise for N.T. Wright and uh, Brother Wright's writings and position. But isn't it interesting that hell is necessary for some people? Did you hear where he said, 
It was the fear, and he said, fear, 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 fear of God, fear of God, fear of God, angst, angst, terror, that drove Martin Luther to Jesus to accept him. Some people believe that's necessary. So we're going to talk about that next week. Now, here's another very popular television uh, evangelist. This is a much shorter clip. I want you to listen to his take on the subject of wrath compared to love. You'll notice who it is. You've all watched him. God is about to say, it's enough. You've taken me out of your schools. You've taken my word out of your schools. You've taken me out of your universities. People who believe in me in the universities have been mocked and belittled. God's going to say, you've rejected me, America, and I'll reject you. You've murdered 60 million babies through abortion. Your sins are the equal of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's payday. God could say that to this country. There's one thing that equals the love of God, and you must never forget this. It's the wrath of God. It is the wrath of God. God loved Israel, but when Israel broke the law of God, read the discipline he put them through. It will break your heart. Oh, my goodness. There's one thing in the universe that equals the love of God, the wrath of God. So see, when, when I come to you and I spend six lessons talking on this subject entitled it, Hell No, <laughs> I do it with some fervor and passion because I know what's going out from the pulpits in our own country here in Western evangelicalism week after week after week, and in my opinion, it is not the gospel. Now, both of these individuals view the cross as a picture of payment. We talked about metaphors and the importance of metaphors. They view the cross as a picture of payment. They view the cross as the place God poured out his anger at your sin and my worthlessness. They view the cross as a substitution by Jesus necessary to appease the justice of a holy God. Now, there's only one problem with that thinking or that atonement theory. That's actually called penal substitution. The cross is not a form of payment. It's a place of forgiveness. The above two forced images are there because of a misunderstanding of metaphor. And let me give you a sneak peek here, okay? Romans chapter 12, verse 19 through 21. We'll have it on the screen. Don't take revenge, my dear people, but allow God's anger room to work. God does get angry. There is room for his anger. The Bible says, after all, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, watch. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. If you do this, you will pile up burning coals on his head. 
Don't let evil conquer you, rather conquer evil with good. In another location, the New Testament talks about how that when we love somebody, it's like pouring coals on their head. So notice, notice the integration of the metaphor. Notice the companionship of fire, all right, coals of fire with love. God's anger is not outside of his love. And isn't it interesting that he would tell you to love your enemy, give your enemy a drink, don't let evil conquer you, but he's going to throw people in hell. He's going to put his enemies in hell. He's going to be at the end of the ages so mad at them and so unforgiving of them that he's going to put them in hell. Sounds like evil's conquering good at that point. I mean, it's just, I mean, that's the way my mind works. Let's talk about this idea of wrath being poured out. Now remember our foundational statement for our lesson this morning. As long as the cross is a place where an angry God poured out his wrath upon his own son, you will never see the beautiful cross as the self-sacrificial giving of the crucified God in love for the world. It is a scandalous statement to say or to admit you worship a crucified God. Think about it. I worship a crucified God. Oh, well, that's Jesus. I mean, God is the Father. Jesus is... No, wait a minute. You're separating the Trinity now? We don't have three gods, right? I mean, that's foundational to all Judeo-Christian doctrine. There's not three gods. The Western church requires the violent death of his son in order to satisfy his honor and pay off justice. But in Scripture, at the cross, Jesus does not save us from God. God is the Savior. At the cross, we don't see what God does. We see who God is. At the cross, it's the supreme revelation of the very nature of God. Talk about metaphor. Let me ask you a question. Where was God when Jesus was dying? On the cross. Where was God when Jesus was hanging on the cross? Here's what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. God was reconciling the world to himself in the Messiah. Other translations read, And God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God was there in Christ hanging on the cross. We worship a crucified God. And by the way, he was reconciling the world to himself, not himself to the world. God never went anywhere. God did not be, need to be reconciled to you. I needed to be reconciled to him. I submit to you that it was an angry, broken world and religious system that murdered Jesus. 
Acts chapter 3, verse 15, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Acts chapter 5, verse 30, the God of our ancestors raised up Jesus whom you had killed by hanging, hanging him on a tree. Acts chapter 7, verse 52, they, your ancestors, killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one and now you have become his betrayers and his murderers. That was in the message, the gospel that they preached. You see, the cross is a picture of forgiveness, not payment. Mm, the beautiful, ugly cross. Could we say it that way? I love Brian Zahn's statement from his book that I've introduced to you here, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. He says, the cross is as ugly as human sin and as beautiful as divine love, but in the end, love and beauty win. Wow. It's, you know, to listen to, to some preachers, including the two today, it's almost as if the Almighty needs an eternal Auschwitz. He needs some ovens to throw the individuals in who didn't make the right choice, didn't believe the right way, didn't measure up, weren't of the right stuff, didn't have the right DNA, didn't... Let me ask you a question. What, what are we saying? Think about this now. If hell exists as eternal, if it's eternal conscious torment, then God's wrath is inexhaustible in its, in its expression through his divine nature, and it will coexist forever with love. That's Brother Hagee's belief. There's only one thing equal to love, wrath. This is not a foreign belief. I'm not, you know, trying to make fun of something. This is pervasive in the teaching of Western evangelicalism. Now I might point out, not the patristic fathers, not the early church, not the early disciples, and not the majority of our Eastern brothers and sisters. Let me ask you another question. If God is eternally angry, then salvation from his wrath and justice is just for the lucky few. While we might say God is in all and he is all, apparently he's not for all because there are some that he's clearly not for. I was praying through this and thinking about how I might word some of these ideas and I wrote this, I'll share it with you. Jeff's going to put it on the screen here. If John Calvin, that's where atonement, penal substitution atonement theory really started and got kicked off, 1500s, if John Calvin, Dante's Inferno, John MacArthur, and John Hagee are right, God will sustain and torture the damned in hell forever while enjoying a loving relationship and marriage supper full of happiness, harmony, and peace, and no more pain or sickness with those who choose correctly in this life even though the power of sin and the devil was still present in our efforts to choose correctly. Hmm. It doesn't seem to side with Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 that says that Jesus, through death, destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, either he did it for all, 
or he did it not at all. Either it's true of all or it's not true at all. He destroyed the power of death. That's what Jesus did. Now how is it going to coexist? How is there going to be a coexistence of a place of eternal conscious torment alongside God's love where presumably all of you will be at the marriage supper and you'll be happy and healed and having a good time and in bliss. But those poor souls. So let me ask you what you're feeling right now. Why the reluctance? It's okay, by the way. I, I, I have no criticism. Believe me. When I first began to open my heart to reading and studying this subject from a different voice than what I learned in Bible school and all my decades of Baptist and charismatic upbringing, I must say this was the big one. This was the hardest one for me personally to deal with and get my arms around and allow that maybe the scriptures could be speaking of something metaphorically that I took literally, such as the wrath of God, such as an afterlife where there's a place of eternal conscious torment. There is a hell. There is suffering after life that will take place. But eternal conscious torment? I'm going to ask the question again because I really want you to think about it. Why the reluctance? Do we resist out of ignorance? Are we afraid that abandoning infernalism implies abandoning faithfulness to the scripture and sound doctrine? That was me, because I prided myself in being right, of having right doctrine. Of course, I was a teacher and a pastor. I had to, but I went to a charismatic Pentecostal Bible school. We t were taught the right things. Brother Hagee spoke there. <laughs> My pastor at the time had been in Brother Hagee's home and backyard and barbecues. and I know what I'm talking about. Might it be that for so long we were taught that to be a Christian, especially an evangelical, is to be an infernalist? Now, while this might be a dark thought, I, I, uh, would you allow me? Because I, I do want to challenge you. I do want to challenge you. I understand this is a little dark. But are you going to miss the eternal torture of others? Is the goodness of God and his redemption somehow diminished if you don't any longer have the blissful knowledge that the rebellious and unbeliever aren't going to burn forever in a lake of fire? Now, you think I'm being mean or critical or trying to be funny or just trying to, you know, play something here. But there are writings, even going back many centuries, where people draw that exact metaphor and comparison that heaven will be more blissful if I'm able to look and see those who are burning in hell. Seeing those who are burning in hell will make what I chose to be an even greater choice. There are writings of theologians and church founders and so forth, even dating back into the 4th, 5th, and 6th century for some who 
became infernalists. How many of you have ever heard of Richard Rohr? Yeah? Tremendous author, speaker, theologian, contemporary today. He said this, and I quote, How and why would God need a blood sacrifice before God could love what God created? Could we stop there, Jeff? Just don't... Could you just read that first sentence with me, everybody? So we will have it on the screen. Everybody aloud, go. How and why would God need a blood sacrifice before God could love what God had created? See, I never was taught to think critically about this. I was taught to accept what I was taught or told. Is God that needy? Is he unfree, unloving, rule-bound, and unable to forgive? Once you say it, you see it creates a nonsensical theological notion that is very hard to defend. Many rightly or wrongly wondered, what will God ask of me if God demands violent blood sacrifice from his only son? Now, I'm going to insert a very personal opinion here based on complete observation, not the scripture or you know study or revelation from the Holy Spirit but based on this that Richard Rohr is bringing to the surface and questioning could it be that these very metaphors and elements of our belief system regarding penal substitution and the wrath of God and the nature of God lend themselves to some of the very severe ugly mean, unkind, murderous things that are going on in our society today? Could it even lend itself to some of the political climate where we have people like never before in America actually hating the opposite opinion, prophesying their death and their doom if you don't believe the way we do. On both sides, both sides are guilty. Could this lend itself to that? Just an observation. So, we're going to close with this. What is God like? Brian Zahn said this, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time where God wasn't like Jesus. We haven't always known it, but now we do. Isn't that great? I've memorized that. Aren't you proud? God is like Jesus. Now, listen, Jesus is not an avatar. You know what an avatar is, right? Just a visual representation. No, Jesus is the actual perfect icon of God, Paul said in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15. What's the difference? How many of you have ever used a computer with windows on it? Or even your phone. Nowadays these phones, they have a desktop and they have icons on them. Now that icon isn't the program itself necessarily but it's a 
representation of it unless it's an actual icon for the program rather than a shortcut. I think our problem is we have a lot of shortcuts in our theology. <laughs> Click on something and it's gonna... No, Jesus is the icon of it. He is the exact representation. When you click on Jesus, you open all that God is. When you click on Jesus, you're not getting just a representation, an avatar that behaves like God does. You're seeing God. You think I'm being too liberal with the word icon in Scripture? All right. John chapter 1 and verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son, who is in the arms of the Father, He has explained Him. John chapter 14, verse 9. Have I been so long with you, and yet you still do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. When Jesus prayed on the cross for the forgiveness of His executioners, he was not acting contrary to the nature of God. He was revealing the nature of God. Forgiving love. Would you all be willing to say what's on the screen? If you, if you don't want to, that's okay. But as, as you're willing and as you're able, this next statement. Could we read it together? Ready? Read. The cross is not what God does. The cross is who God is. The cross is not about satisfaction of an omnipotent vengeance. The cross is about the revelation of divine mercy. In Christ we discover a God who would rather die than kill his enemies. Did you hear that? In the cross we discover a God who would rather die than kill his enemies. We serve, it's, it's so, it, 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 it's so uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it's so radical. It, it, it's so, uh, it, it produces so much upheaval to think I worship a crucified God. It's scandalous. I worship a crucified God who would rather die than throw his enemies in a place of eternal conscious torment. Here you go, watch this. The crucifixion is not what God inflicts upon Jesus in order to forgive. The crucifixion is what God endures in Christ as he forgives. Brian in his book says this, forgiveness is not receiving payment for a debt. Forgiveness is the gracious cancellation of debt. There is no payment in forgiveness. Forgiveness is grace. God's justice is not reprisal. The justice of God is not an abstract concept where somehow sin can only be forgiven if an innocent victim suffers a severe enough penalty. In the final analysis, punitive justice is not justice at all. It's merely retribution. The only justice God will accept as justice is actually setting the world right. Justice is not the punishment of a surrogate whipping boy. That's injustice. 
consider these scriptures. They all say the same thing. Here's Isaiah chapter 54. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. God gets angry, but he's not going to keep it. And how long? Well, at least not forever. But according to some, there's a place of eternal conscious torment that abides forever. Well, apparently not according to Scripture. Psalm 103, in an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving, with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you. Have you ever gotten mad and then later said, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't said that. Gosh, I'm ashamed I felt that way. I just, oh. and you repent and you change. That's the God in you. That's God's likeness. Now, God has gotten mad. God does get mad. But he says himself, I'm not going to stay that way. And then Hosea, chapter 6 and verse 2, talking about a people who deserve to be just cast into, quote, hell. I will revive us. He will revive us. Excuse me. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live for him. Does that sound like any other event as you move forward into the New Testament? That's the resurrection. That's a prophetic look at the resurrection of Jesus. He'll revive us after two days. He'll raise us up on the third day despite the ugliness, despite the brokenness, despite the things we have done. I'm going to close with this slide. Here you go. John Sehak said, in the ugliest place of human existence, crucifixion and death, God reveals himself as absolute, total, self-giving love, being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death. The Christ form is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. These are some of the reasons why I can no longer embrace the idea that hell is eternal conscious torment. I know there's a hell. And I know, even according to the best looking into Scripture, it's not always clear of whether there'll be as we've already talked about in the previous lessons, you'll have to listen to them, annihilation or ultimately the forgiveness of all and redemption, which we're going to talk about in the sixth one. Uh, some call it universalism. Right? That there'll be some sort of suffering for a while, but then it, it will be sort of like a purgatory some of the early church fathers did believe in a purgatory where there'd be a cleansing and a suffering, but then a redemption. I just know this. There is no place in the afterlife for eternal conscious torment. It is contrary to who God is. Let's humble ourselves before the Lord for just a moment. Nina, if you would come.
this moment while this music is playing, I'm just very aware that those clips we showed, those video clips, are actually the paradigm of so many evangelicals. And you might be under that. You might be under that fear and that torment that they spoke about. Thinking that keeps you on the narrow way. Thinking that that's how God brings you back if you stray. I speak to you that that is erroneous. That that is not God's love and not the love He has for you right now. Wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever your lifestyle, and whatever choices you've made, and you might be feeling right now, gosh, I've made some really unhealthy ones. Well, come on back. Come on back. You say, well, I, I never came in the first place. Never been to church or hated church when I was made to go when I was young. And this whole Jesus thing and Bible, I don't even believe the Bible and I'm not even sure about the whole Jesus thing. That's okay. In fact, I'd, I'd rather talk to somebody like you than somebody who's steeped in all of the religious absolutes. You see, nothing Jesus did required my permission. Didn't require my approval. Didn't require my agreement. He loves you unconditionally the way you are. Even if you never change, it's not going to change Him. It'll never change His love for you. Say, oh, well, I can, so I can just live the kind of life I want to live here on earth and not be responsible for anything. And when I get to the end, I'll get into heaven too. Boy, I can have my cake and eat it too. Well, now, that's not what's been taught in this series. And I wouldn't bet on that, that at the end of life, there won't be some sort of very unfortunate suffering but I do know this what you are missing right now by not being in his loving arms oh my gracious so I don't want to change and I've tried and can't he doesn't want you to change he wants you just the way that you are and we leave the rest to him so right now, anybody under the sound of my voice here in the congregation or out there watching by live stream, I want to pray. You plug in where you can and make it yours. Dear God, thank you for loving me in the cross. What an incredible love. Open my heart to understand Open my eyes to see. I'm willing to experience something different than what I have now. 
here I am. This is what you get. Here I am. And now, Father, in your love, by your power, in the name of Jesus, I break every band. I break every stronghold. Every tie. Every spiritual, demonic, if it's evil, satanic, everything that might be holding back people's decision-making. Every thought that's caused you to fear, to be in terror and dread, and to pull back from God's love. I just break that over you now. And I declare over you the light and the love of Jesus and that your life is going to become all that God has for you as you surrender to Him. And I pray this in His Son's name. 